And the Oscar goes to... Gentlemen's Agreement. When Laura Z. Hobson's great story, Gentlemen's Agreement, first appeared serially in Cosmopolitan magazine, its 20 million readers were startled at its daring. As a book, Gentlemen's Agreement still leads all bestseller lists month after month. No story of the last decade has hit the literary world with such terrific impact. The author has deftly treated a taboo topic to give it excitement, exhilaration, and entertainment. And now, as a motion picture, Gentlemen's Agreement is accorded the highest honor a picture can be given. Ciao, my people, and welcome to our 20th episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, where we travel through time reviewing the films that earned their gold statue or standard, if you will. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and as always, joining me at the Gold Standard Theatre are my two podcasting partners in crime. On one side, the fantastic Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you today? Oh, not bad, not bad. Glad to hear that. And by the way, happy belated birthday to your mom, who I knew recently celebrated a birthday. Yes, she turned 29 again. <laughs> I don't know how she does it, but... Uh, Why hmm. break with tradition, right? I guess so. <laughs> and on the other the other voice you heard, of course, a wonderful, fantabulous Zan Sprouse. Hey, Zan, how are you today? I'm good. It's a cold and rainy day here in Ohio, so I'm just sort of staying inside under a under a blanket and a cozy sweater and excited to talk about movies oh awesome well we're definitely this is definitely going to be an interesting one as we are not alone ladies we are of course joined today in the gold standard theater by a man who is a teacher and wise man by trade rabbi david wyman hey david how are you and welcome to the gold standard theater thanks nick great to be here great to be back with you again um it's a uh, also a cold rainy day here in new york city Oh, well, exactly. It's, it's actually a little bit chilly over here, too, in in Milan. I'm actually wearing my Montreal Canadiens fleece, which always keeps me nice and warm. So uh, so everybody's kind of wrapped up as we as we are in here in the theaters. It seems like we don't have central heating in the theater. So I guess everybody's to kind of stay warm. So today we are reviewing Gentleman's Agreement, directed by Elia Kazan, whom we will meet again when we review On the Waterfront. This film was based on the 1947 novel by the same name, written by Laura Z. Hobson. The screenplay was by Moss Hart and Elia Kazan, and the original score was by Alfred Newman. And on estimate print day's money, guys, this movie cost $23 million to make and made $91 million at the box office, and opened on November the 11th of 1947 in Davidstown in New York City, and has a runtime of roughly two hours. So, starting here with first impressions, David, let's start here with you. Had, was this the first time you sat down to watch Gentleman's Agreement, and were you familiar with the novel also? Uh, I had never read the novel. I knew of the movie, and my recollection, Nick, it's a little hazy, because back in my youth, I do think I did see part of it, mm -hmm. uh, but um, this was really the first time I engaged it with, with a serious look. Okay. And, uh, and Zan, when it comes to you, what, uh, was this the first time for you seeing this? It was the first time for me seeing this. I mentioned this briefly before last time mm -hmm. that I don't like Ilya Kazan at all. <laughs> and I have been kind of a little bit of a brat about that. And I have not watched a lot of 
his movies that I hadn't seen before I learned about him. You know, I'd seen On the Waterfront, I'd, you know, all that stuff that you see in school before you learn about how people are just terrible people. <laughs> so I've been kind of a, I've been kind of a brat about that. And and after watching this movie, I'm really kicking myself for that because this movie was so phenomenally wonderful. Mm-hmm. And the entire time I was watching it, I just wanted to scream at the screen and say, how can you make a movie like this? How can you write and direct a movie like this and then do the things you did? Mm. It was, it was so, you know, especially knowing how, how anti Huac Gregory Peck was, especially knowing what happened to John Garfield, you know, hindsight being 2020, this one made just, just made me even more mad. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, it was such, such a good movie. And, we talk a lot about movies that tackle social issues that are still going on today mm-hmm. as being a good try, but not fully hitting the mark because of the time period they were in. Oh. And this one I think has hit the mark better than any of any of our movies have so far. I mean, aside of course, you know, that does not include all quiet on the Western front, all quiet on the Western front. That message is perfect no matter what, but even though there were some things in this movie where you wanted to say, could you maybe hire a Jewish writer to write a story about anti-Semitism? <laughs> <laughs> but well, well hold you know, on. The more I <laughs> hold on, because Laura Z. Hobson was Jewish, but uh, Phil Green was not in no. the, the oh, character. I, oh, you're talking about the, the the character in the movie. Sorry. Right, right. That's yeah. That's what I'm saying. That you know, they, they have this wonderfully socially progressive idea to have a to blow the lid off of anti-semitism in new york but they hire a gentile to do it (laughs) and at first i was thinking to myself okay wait a minute could you maybe hire a jewish writer for that but the more i thought about it the more i thought i kind of like this idea of the undercover Mm. the you know the the undercover angle that he has because there is no cynicism there. There is no, yeah. Okay. One more time. Here I go. You know, Mm -hmm. as we see in the character, as we see in the character of Dave, where he's, he's just, yep, that's how it works. Whereas when you have uh, Phil Green doing this, he sees it for the first time and he's, it's new, he's outraged, and he can write it from a look at what happened to me, you guys, this this more mm-hmm. fresh perspective. And so, you know, while I do think, you know, we did we do find out that this magazine, for as liberal as they are, have some shady hiring pra- practices. Yeah. There there is a benefit to the way to the way they did this. But I think this one really hits the mark because it has the you know, you, you, you have the Gregory Peck character who is truly out to do this for a good reason. Yeah. You have the editor who wants to do it for a good reason and is very interested in his appearance, but not necessarily keeping his employees in check. You have the woman who likes to sound like she's not prejudiced, but deep down really kind of is because mm-hmm. she cares about what the neighbors think. And then you have the character who is Jewish and has the very down to earth but realistic yet cynical yet sad 
mentality about it and the character of Dave. He said, yeah, that's, that's how this works. And this is what we have to do to fight it. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other character who is Jewish that if only more Jews would act like me, we wouldn't be in this problem. You don't want to hire the bad Jews. So maybe you <laughs> might not want to put that in your ad. Yeah. You have that sort of self-loathing minority. And then you have the person that is just for sure, just not prejudiced. You know, and that's the Celeste Home character. So they do a really good job of having all different. And then, of course, you had the flat out bigoted, terrible people. <laughs> yes. But they, but they show you all of the spectrum. You have the, the, the horrible kids that beat up Dean Stockwell. Yeah. You've got and then you've got all the different levels all the way up to just totally not bigoted. And I think having those subtleties in this movie really helped this movie hit its mark even back in 1947. So I was incredibly mm-hmm. impressed. I'm usually impressed with Moss Hart and I'm so, so disappointed even more in Ilya Kazan that he could write and direct such a wonderful, wonderful movie about not being bigoted and judging people for their beliefs and then him turning out to be the man he turned out to be. Mm, true. Very true. And Rachel, what were your thoughts, uh, initial thoughts on this? Was this the first time watching Gentleman's Agreement? Yeah, this was, I was going into this one completely uneducated on even what the premise of the movie uh, was. So, uh, you know, when I picked up the, the DVD from the library and, you know, read the little synopsis on the back and I'm like, okay, well, this is relevant even now, which is really sad, um, you know, and as we get into the, the characters and the and the plot and stuff, I'm not going to elaborate on that, but um, it's, it's like, it, it's a good movie, it's a good, it's a good story, it's a good, um, you know, it's got a good moral to the story, but Damn it, if it's not almost 100 years later and we've still not learned our lesson. <laughs> it's really <Yes>. disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you make a great point there for sure, Rachel. And, you know, I think that this, I, I'm kind of with, with all you guys because the premise of this movie very much intrigued me. And, you know, coming a year after the horrors of the Holocaust had been exposed to public at large during the Nuremberg trials in '46. And it also delves into something that we had somewhat, I guess, tackled in our review of the life of Emile Zola with, with our friend Garrett, where it had been pointed out how anti, anti-Semitism was a serious problem in the U.S. as well. And this film, I think, very much kicks over one heck of an anthill with that, which did hit possibly a little too close to home for me. And apparently before filming this, Samuel Goldwyn and other Jewish executives approached the producer, Daryl Zanuck, and asked him not to make this movie because they were afraid it would stir up trouble. Mm-hmm. And apparently they also warned that uh, the, the Hayes Code enforcer, Joseph Breen, might not allow the film to pass censors as he had been known to make very disparaging remarks about Jews. And of course, there was also the concern that Dorothy McGuire's character being divorced would offend the National League of Decency. So this is where we were pretty much when it came to. So it was definitely a, a movie that uh, I think that was very, it was almost not made because of all these things. But I'm so glad it was made because it's a great movie for sure. So let's start looking at our characters on the board here, starting with the aforementioned uh, one of the leading men, of course, our journalist Gregory Peck as Philip Schuyler Green. So Zan, starting here with you, what were your you, you mentioned him a little bit, so deep, uh, diving down a little deeper, what were your thoughts on Philip? 
Well, first of all, I love Gregory Peck. I was, <laughs> I jokingly texted I jokingly texted a friend of my my friend Shelley who listens to our show and who I talk about all the time. And I said Gregory Peck is the patron saint of widowed single fathers. <laughs> 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 because he's so he's so good at playing that character, even in a time when you didn't see that. He's still a very attentive father mm. in, in spite of... I mean, I know he does have his mother around to help him, but, you know, when there's only one parent and one of them has to work, somebody's got to help, so... But he's still pretty. He's still pretty attentive, which is very cool, and uh, again, it's, it's parallel to his, it, the Atticus Finch character. Uh, another fantastic movie about bigotry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um... And Gregory Peck, you know, he's, you know, he's fought anti-Semitism, he's fought racism, he's been a Nazi, and he's fought the devil. So he can do anything. He's amazing. <laughs> and this character, I really liked this character because, like I said before, when I first heard about his assignment to write about doing expose on anti-Semitism, you know, we're going to blow the lid off of this. And, and I thought, we're, are we talking to any Jewish people at all? Like, <laughs> even he... It, but one thing I love about the Phillips character is that even he thinks about his friend Dave, who is Jewish, and then he's, oh, should I call him? And then he, he actually pretty much just says, it's not Dave's job to explain anti-Semitism to me, <laughs> which is something that we're talking about today. It's not... It's not the job of your of your friends who are black to explain to you systematic racism. It's mm -hmm. not the job of your LGBTQ friends to explain how not having LGBTQ rights are going to affect every, you know, it's not their job to do it. So I, I, I like that he wanted Dave's perspective. But he also understood that Dave was not going to have all the answers. He's one man. He's had his experiences. He's not, he doesn't have all of the answers. And I really liked that about his character. And I liked the fact that he had such, I, I loved his family. I loved his family. He had a, a son who he was doing his best with and he seemed to be really connected to and his son seemed to love him in spite of the fact that his mother was gone and, and Gregory Peck's character was widowed. I think his mother was fantastic because when he came home and he said, okay, here's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to say that I'm Jewish. And she's like, well, I guess I'm, I'm Jewish too. And she, that's just how it works. And so you could tell that this is a really supportive family. So that tells you something about this character and how he had support as he was growing up to be a well-rounded, non-bigoted, decent human being. Mm -hmm. So I liked that about it. I, again, this we are still in our trend of people meet once and then fall in love and want to spend the rest of their lives together <laughs> yes. love stories. And I, towards towards the end, I started to feel bad about their love story being on the rocks but then i started to feel really good that he got rid of her and then i was a little i mean i was happy for him because he loved her and i was happy because she was seeming to start like she it, she did seem like she was growing and learning and going to try and change but i was like really you're gonna go back to her <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah. you know let her show you a few more things before you just take her back 
but I, I loved how he was just ready to be, okay, I'm Jewish now and ready to learn. He just, he wanted to learn and how he was so outraged at everything, outraged at the, the stories he heard and the passive jokes he heard and the passive stereotypes that he was listening to and how he treated Elaine like, really? That's, what do you mean the right kind of people? He, he really was able to see all of, all, all through, through all of that and to question the people who were thinking those things. Some of the arguments he had with Kathy were wonderful. And, you know, you see a character when like Dave has the discussion with her, He's a little more level-headed, but Philip is so angry because he's just learning about this. Mm. You know, Philip's like a Philip's like a teenager that goes to high school for the first time with more kids. You know, from a small town or something or a small alternative school, and then he goes to a big high school where there are bigger people, and he's like, "What the hell is wrong with all of these people?" <laughs> yeah. So you really get his his sense of anger at the new awareness that he's feeling. Mm. Very and great. yeah. Yeah, and his his ability to catch onto it. It's like the second he said, I'm going to be Jewish and I'm going to have the mindset of I'm a Jewish man, he started picking up on things that his character probably just didn't notice before. Mm-hmm. And so I really admired his character's observational skills. And I just I thought he was a really all-around good guy. And, you know, it's... It, it's unfortunate that more people have to walk a mile in a man's shoes to understand before they, you know, before they even sympathize. It's like, there are some people out there that have to empathize before they can sympathize. Mm. Um, But I feel like his character could have had that anyway, even without just saying I'm Jewish and then watching the room go silent and watching the air get sucked out of a conversation. Mm. Um, so I really, I really did like this character very, very much. Well, for sure. And you know what? That unfortunately, when you mentioned the fact that the silence kind of going in the room, that has actually happened to me on occasion because everybody oh, was like, everybody was just shocked when they thought I was Jewish because I guess people think that you know have a certain ideal concept of what a Jew is like or even looks like, and they were like, really, or a, you know? cer- or a yeah. certain concept of what an Italian is like. Exactly. It's you very, know people think oh. Italian and they automatically think Catholic. Yes, exactly. That's, that's so I'm sure well, that they're, you're yeah. just an iconoclast in like six different ways when you tell them you're Jewish. You're like, <laughs> so you're Italian, a country music fan, uh, and like just all the things that, you know, people don't associate culturally with, with, with Judaism. You're, you're probably just blowing people's minds left and right. Uh, pro- probably. And also, you know, the fact that you pointed out the fact of walking the person's shoes, it reminded me to use a, a, a comic book reference of the issue in Superman when Lois Lane is, it becomes black for a day and experiences oh, yeah. what it's like to walk in, the, in an African-American woman's shoes. It's a great, great issue. It made me think of that, of the way we're talking about uh, what, what this character does. And Rachel, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on Phil Green? Um... <sighs> This is a great character, um, and like Zane was saying, to have a non-Jewish person, you know, go from that, use that as the angle for the the, the magazine, mm. um, was good because he doesn't, he's not going into it with the baggage mm. and the preconceived notions that 
a Jewish person might go into it. Um, yes, you know, Gregory Peck is the patron saint of Widowed Fathers. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, and he's got a great, he seems to have a great relationship with both his son and his, and his mother. Um, and, uh, he's a, he's a good character, but I don't, I think this character was hindered by Peck's performance. This is not Gregory Peck at his best. Mm. And I, I don't know if that's from, you know, it's, he's still early in his career. You know, we're 15 years away from How to Kill a Mockingbird right. um, at this point. So, you know, he's he's still wet behind the ears as an actor. There are several scenes where it was just, his performance was just so bland. Mm. You know, like uh, when uh, Tommy calls, you know, upset and... You know, he's all like, you know, he gets on the phone and he's like, well, there's some madness in the cabinet, grab that. And, you know, everyone else that he's with, because he's at someone else's home, and they're like, what's going on? He's like, that sounds like a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> Just matter of fact, like, oh, a pipe burst in the kitchen. You know, <laughs> it's like, your mother has already had, like, a possible heart attack and now she's possibly had a stroke but you just make it sound like oh darn i got a flat tire on my car uh, also what medicine is she gonna take for a stroke yeah well <laughs> <laughs> who knows <laughs> um, so uh yeah i just i think this character could have been so much stronger and some of that is Peck's performance some of that I think is the script um, the way that this is broken up we don't really get into like the meaty part of this into like the last third of the movie and mm. this movie is slightly under two hours long so that's not a lot of time True. to really get into the weeds and really get into the the drama and the conflict and everything of this um so i think that i think that hindered it too um so it's like character great performance not so much <laughs> okay. you know, it's like peck will get there you know and we've all seen to kill a mockingbird we know what he's capable of yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Once and he gets to, you know atticus finch but this is not this is not to kill a mockingbird Peck yet. Mm -hmm. And in fact, my, my dad is a huge, huge fan of that movie. And in fact, as soon as I told him I was watching a movie with Gregory Peck, he's like, oh, which one is it? Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird? I'm like, no, Gentleman's Agreement. It's like, oh, okay. And so that was, that was pretty much the end of that conversation. And David, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on our leading man? Uh, it's, it's always problematic going third because um, my predecessors have taken all the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, too, was struck by just how young Gregory Peck was, because my my image of him is is the Atticus Finch, but also uh, Captain Ahab, um, and here was this you know fresh faced youngster um, by comparison. So that was that was a little um, uh, it was I guess it was a mark on how old I am, um, <laughs> but uh, I I have to say I I did not. Find uh, I'm with with Rachel that I thought that both the script and the acting were were very flat. Um, 
and found no chemistry between uh, Skylar Green and uh, Dorothy, uh, Gregory Peck and, and Dorothy McGuire. I mean, that, that romance was, uh, it just went nowhere for me. Um, I didn't find it believable at all. The, um, the one kiss, one date marriage proposal just didn't work. I, there was real chemistry between Gregory Peck and Celeste Holmes. That was, that was brilliant. Um, but I also, I also found the whole premise uh, of his character to be a little disingenuous, I guess is the word. I mean, this was a guy who had, well, an anthropologist would call it participant observation, who had been a coal miner, who had been an Oki. And, and it takes him 30 minutes into the script before he figures out he can do the same thing um, within this this context as well, that that did not ring true to me. I mean, the but I love the way his mother gave him the idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, she, yeah. No, so um, I, I did not think this was a great role for him, uh, and I didn't think he played what he was given very well either. Mm, so okay, well, I mean, to me, I guess you know this character, I guess, is one who very much loves to live dangerously. I will say, and some may make the point that he ends up putting his own family in danger with his undercover journalist style. As of course, we do see that his son gets beaten up at school and mistreated for being thought a Jew. Granted, that should not happen, but I suppose, knowing the climate at the time, you do think he may would have been a little more cautious. Not to mention his own mom may risk not getting treatment for her heart condition because she too may now be considered Jewish. And on one hand, you know, he decides to continue the pretense which is causing him and his family major trouble. While at the same time, he has this whirlwind romance, as you guys were pointing out, with Kathy Lacey, whom we find out is certainly not all she seems. And I was actually surprised he stayed with her, as I would have dropped this girl like a hot potato <laughs> way before things went any further. And... That's why we love you, Nick. (laughs) You got it. I mean, I did love this character, though, for fully embracing, though, the fight against anti-Semitism. I think he's possibly as surprised, like even Zan was pointing out, surprised and shocked as we are at how rooted it is in society and how bad things really are. And I like that also he calls Kathy out on her hypocrisy and wanting to silently go along with this kind of slithering underground anti-Semitism. And he is my hero you know, for the most part, but he should have possibly been more cautious and bad taste in women, bro. Bad taste in women. Seeing as you know, you have a perfectly cool, fun party animal like Anne Detry right there. And that's all I'm going to say. But uh, moving on, before we actually get to Miss Lacey, I thought we could actually briefly look at, at Phil's boss, Albert Decker, as John Minifee, whom our listeners might know from The Killers, Kiss Me Deadly, Dr. Cyclops, and The Wild Bunch. So, Rachel, starting here with you, what were your thoughts on John Minifee? Um, you know, it, it's, it was kind of nice to, to see, um, to, to have Phil have somebody kind of in his corner and, uh, you know, cause he's one of the few people that knows what he's doing. Um, yeah. and 
you know, instead of just Phil going off and writing the article, you know, like his first article or whatever in the series and then coming and being like, oh, you know, here's my first piece completed. Even before that, you know, he's keeping him in the loop and therefore um, he's hearing about some of the things that he's discovering in his in his research and everything. Um, and that forces him to start making changes at the magazine, even, mm-hmm. you know, weeks before the article the first in the the series is going to be printed um so it was it was nice to see a good supportive boss in you know in his employee's corner having his back uh you know uh as some of the other people that work in the organization come in like the hr guy or whatever when talking about hiring secretaries and he's like yeah, well, it's all based on personality, and he's like, "Bull crap on personality." <laughs> yeah, you know, put this ad in the you know in the papers. Looking for secretaries, religion does you know not does doesn't matter, and any sort of you know going forward, any sort of hiring, make sure that goes in the listing. So, uh, you know, he he is somebody unlike a lot of the other people where. Yeah, you know, when Phil starts butting heads with people like Kathy and Dave and stuff, and they're all like, "Well, what are we gonna do? That's just the way things are." Hello, this guy is actually doing something. You know, it may not be earth-shattering and going to change the entire world overnight, but it's something. Yeah. You know, it's it's showing that one person can do something that may make a difference. So somebody's got to get that ball rolling down the hill. Very, very well said. And David, what were your thoughts on Phil's boss? I thought it was a very well-played supporting role. Um, He's a very likable character. Mm. Um, He's a, he's certain, I mean, I I gave him high marks for liberalism. Um, And it was, it was, the the question was, you know, there's, there's this notion of um, designed blindness where, where we can, we have a, there's a tendency to um, criticize in others the very same behavior we show in our own practice. Mm-hmm. So here he's, he's uh, criticizing um, others for their uh, anti-Semitic behavior, and yet he's got an organization that purports to see the same thing, and he doesn't know it. Um, I mean, he's, he's been blind to it. Now, whether that was intentional or whether it was just the action of his his HR boss, um, the guy he calls into his office. That I, I'm not. Sh- I, I didn't know how to answer that question. So I, I'll give him the the benefit of the doubt, and and say it was just a, a lack of cognizance. But but it I thought I thought he he was a, a, a was a very valuable dimension to the problem uh, that was demonstrated through through his actions. I mean even the best um, supportive um, ally to, to fighting anti-Semitism is shown up to have uh, not rooted it out in his own backyard, so to speak. Well said. And Zan, what were your thoughts on this character? I thought this was a great character to illustrate the difference between not being a bigot and being anti-bigotry because he himself had all of these ideas. This is what we're supposed to be like. This is what we're going to do. We're a liberal magazine, but 
he's not making sure of that. He just knows that that mentality of, oh, well, not all white people are bigots because he's not. And that idea of, yes, of course, you're not, but that still doesn't solve the problem. You need to, you need to be actively fighting to be anti-bigoted rather than just not be bigoted yourself. Not being bigoted yourself is step one. And he was a good example of that because there he is in his office with his whole, we're going to blow the lid off of this and this is what we're going to do. And this is what we need to, you know, the anti-Semitism is wrong and blah, blah, blah. And then he has this HR manager that's like, you know, it's all based on personality, which, you know, we've all heard the, the stereotypes of there's, there's hundreds of them. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, go into I'm not going to go into it because we've all heard them and they're all hurtful and they're all stupid and he's he's disappointing in in the fact that he he doesn't just fire that guy I mean I wish he would have just fired that HR guy because this has obviously been happening for a while and he hasn't you know he hasn't really taken the time to look around and notice there are no Jewish names on his staff and, you know, which of course means there's probably, you know, we know, we know what year it was. There were no black names. There are no black people, no black faces on his staff either. So um, there's all kinds of bigotry going on that he's just deciding not to look at because he's thinking, well, I'm not that way. So therefore I'm done. And that's not how it works. When you are an editor or a boss or the head of something, you need to look around and you need to see your surroundings. Okay. Who in my organization is represented? Do we have a diverse... And of course, diversity in 1947 was the concept that maybe you hired a woman not yeah. for cleaning or secretarial position. I mean, it was, it was very... There was a very non-diverse definition of diversity back then. But, you know, if what his concern is, is anti-Semitism, he needs to look around him and say, what is my organization doing? There's, you know, I'm not the only one here. And I, I think he was a good character. The fact that he was a good example of that, that just how you feel is not going to cut it, especially when you are in charge of something. And he also, it's almost like he put the problem on the victims when Hmm. he asked for the HR guy to run an ad that said, religion is not an issue and no judgments will be made or whatever it said when he asked him to put that in the ad it's almost like he's assuming that they don't have any jewish people working for them because jewish people aren't applying for that job right and when he knows damn well that the reason there are no jewish people in that office is because the hiring manager isn't hiring them so instead of running you know instead of you know running the same ad that they've always run and getting a new hiring manager he's he's basically putting the onus of proof on the victims saying you know hey jewish people come apply again you know we got rid of that guy or saying please apply jewish people we know you might not have before because we don't have any of you working here and i didn't it's a it's that concept of your heart is in the right place but your actions are misguided and that didn't make me dislike the character though because i liked that his heart was in the right place and i liked that he illustrated how 
his actions were the wrong way to do it. And, you know, I love, you know, I love, I love, uh, Dr. Cyclops is one of my favorite B movies from the forties. So Albert <laughs> Decker does have a soft spot in my heart. He's, he's a, he's an interesting guy. I'll just say that. Go ahead and Google him. He's very interesting. But uh, <laughs> I think he did a, I think he did a good job of being likable, but the whole time you're watching him, you're going, Oh, so close. You just didn't know you're, <laughs> I like where you're coming from, but you're just doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. That this this is true because I mean he is an, uh, definitely a positive character in a film kind of full of hypocrites and closeted or not so closeted racists and it did surprise me though that he had no clue of the biased hiring policies that were going mm-hmm. on under his very nose and it took Phil to let him know about it I mean as you were also pointing out Zan you know his heart is very much I think in the right place and he completely embraces Phil's angle on the story and. The fact that he drives Phil to truly get to the heart of the matter rather than write yet another dry piece with stats and figures. And I think he does very much, you know, kind of is all about kind of equality and justice for all. And I do applaud his passion on the subject and wanting to post haste kind of change the hiring policies and openly putting it out in his paper. But yeah, it was it was odd that he didn't know. I mean, he's the boss; he doesn't really know what's going on. But and I also like that he. I also guess he likes to play matchmaker as well, as he wants to kind of see his niece happy and meeting this nice guy. And it was kind of a little bit awkward at the beginning. It was like, you know, this is my niece. This is this guy. Come on, you know, do something about it, kind of thing. Like, <laughs> okay, you know, that'll work. But but yeah, he was I, he was definitely the positive character for sure. So as we did talk about her a little bit, let's get to our, one of our leading ladies, Dorothy McGuire as Kathy Lacey, who uh, our listeners might know mainly from Friendly Persuasion. So, David, let's start here with you. What were your thoughts on Miss Lacey? <laughs> Hated her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really uh, just had no uh, connection with this character at all. Um, I found her acting to be just flat. Um, the flattest of the flat acting um, she mastered. Um, I just did not. I, I, I leave it to the others to say some nice things <laughs> if they can. But uh, I, I did not find her to be in the, I didn't get the romance. I didn't get uh, her, her instant conversion. Um, I, I just didn't find it believable at all. And Zan, what were your thoughts on this character? I really did not like this character. Started, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I don't know how you can like this character. It's like, I like that they have her growing at the end and starting to starting to think, I, I think about why she is the way she is. But I don't like her for that as much as I like Dave for saying the right things to bring out her introspection. Mm-hmm. So... It's like I still even don't I still don't even like her after she's grown a little bit and given Dave the house. So when when we first meet her, I, I thought again, their their banter was cute, but again, way too fast for them falling in love to the point of like, let's you know, let's get married. So again, fast love stories, which is which is a pattern at this time, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um the one thing I did think was interesting is I felt like when they were physical with each other, it was pretty passionate for 1947, you know, very, very passionate kisses. And like we said that she's divorced. So, so I thought that was pushing the envelope a little bit. So I I liked that aspect of the character, Mm -hmm. but like, like we've all said, the acting is not quite there and the passion wasn't, 
it's the actions that were passionate, not the kisses themselves. Right. So it just was an interesting, interesting concept of like you're having these people like really like like right on each other with a, <laughs> with a deep kiss, as deep as a kiss could have been on film in 1947. Mm. So, but what drove me nuts about her is she's one of those closeted bigots. She likes to think that she's not, but she she is because she's going along with what everybody else is doing. And I think that's something that a lot of people do when they're young, when they're children. You know, you make fun of somebody because everybody else is making fun of them. You don't quite know why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, even the kids that, that uh, beat up Tommy were probably calling him derogatory names because that's what their dad says. They don't actually have that opinion necessarily. They've never lost a job to a Jewish guy or um, been uh, whatever. Like, you know, there's so many, so many slurs that I don't even like to say out loud because they're so terrible. But, you know, they're, you know, they've never gone to sell something and been lowballed by a Jewish buyer. Like all these things that, you know, for whatever reason people have decided is, standard for all Jewish people and therefore a reason to hate them. These kids have not experienced that. They have been told that by their fathers and mothers. And that's why they're saying, Oh, you dirty Jew, get out of our school. But they're kids, you know? And I, I feel like she's doing that same thing of going along with, Oh, well that's, we just don't sell the Jewish people in this neighborhood. That's what we've always done. That's just how it is. And just sort of going along with it because it's how it is, even though she doesn't like it. But she likes it enough to want to say, well, can I at least tell my sister you're not Jewish? So she, she's not worried. And, and again, she flip-flops again where she's saying, so where are these other people? Why, you know, oh, they're not here. They're on vacation. They went to Palm Springs. And she's like, you just didn't invite them because they were the really outspoken anti-Semites, right? <laughs> so it's like she tries to fight, but she fights only like with her own sister. She never fights a new fight you know the scene the scene with her and dave at the end where he's saying she says i was at this restaurant this guy said something and i was so mad inside what'd you do i was just mad inside did you say anything no did you do anything no it's like well your anger is kind of getting you nowhere right i mean now you can kind of understand why you being silent about this is really terrible and Honestly, I think that's an amazing message that we're seeing in a movie in 1947 after we just got out of a war where millions of Jewish people died because nobody said anything. It was, well, that's just, that's a Jewish problem. Or, well, that's what's happening over there. I don't like it, but what can I do? Uh -uh." And so, you know, we obviously know really well what happens when we see anti-Semitism and it goes seemingly unnoticed. It's internalized. So... After a while, I just really stopped liking her. Um, you know, her thing about, and I'll talk more about this when we talk about Anne's character. Um, when she finds out that the hotel that they want to stay at for their honeymoon is is restricted. Yeah. She's like, oh, are you sure? I mean, well, but you're not really Jewish. And it's like, once you find out that a hotel is restricted, you don't go. Because they're jerks. Not because you're who they're restricting, but because they're jerks. Like, I don't buy Barilla pasta because they say, we don't make pasta for gay people. 
screw them. I'm not buying your pasta. Cremet is just as good. It, you know, I'm not gay, but that's terrible. That's a terrible thing to say. Mm-hmm. So you don't just you don't just say, oh, well, are you sure? Because I'd really like to go there. You say, oh, well, screw them. And then the scene when I really dropped her like a hop, like I stopped having any hope for her was with Tommy. Where she's like, oh, sweetie, it's not true. You're no more a Jew than I am. Like, it's bad to be Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, that's comforting. You know, you should say, like, those kids are terrible. Their fathers are probably terrible. Don't listen to them. There's nothing wrong with any of us for what we believe in. You know, you're, you know, I'm sorry you went through this. But, you know, you're a good kid to fight this good fight with us. Say something like that. But just saying, oh, just remember, you're not actually Jewish. It'll be okay. Who the hell are you? Get the hell out of my house and don't ever talk to my child again. <laughs> what yeah. I really wanted Philip to say to her. <laughs> I, and, I was yeah, I'm right there with you, Zan. <laughs> yeah, and like you said, it's like I was really hoping that he would be like, oh, okay, Anne is who I should be with. But mm-hmm. um, no, he goes right back to her after she figures, you know, after he finds out that she did in fact give the house to Dave and his family. Mm-hmm. She's trying, but she's got a long way to go, and she's got a long way to go for me to even want to talk to her again, <laughs> <laughs> if I knew her. So, yeah, I really, really did not like her. But again, I think she was a good portrayal of that kind of a person. That I, I talk about this a lot, especially right now in the United States, where we have all of this, you know, all of this violence from police on on black people. Um, recently, you know, at the end of last year. Um, four blocks from my house, we had a police officer shoot a black man after seeing him for 10 seconds. He had engaged with him for 10 seconds and shot him dead. And all he was doing was visiting a friend. There was nothing, no, no, no need for thought of no risk of violence, no risk of bodily harm, nothing, just, oh, black man, bang. And so I'm very conscious of that sort of a thing. And when I hear people making statements like, well, what were they doing? Or let's, let's hear all sides of it. Or, you know, maybe he thought he had a gun, you know, shut up. You don't shoot someone within 10 seconds of seeing them. They're a terrible person and you're a terrible person. And I'm realizing now you're only nice to me because I'm white. And she's that character. She seems like a perfectly sweet girl who's nice and funny and they have a nice relationship and they're, you know, like, wooden acting aside they have cute banter but if he'd been really jewish and she'd known that the first night she wouldn't have given him the time of day and you know those people in your life that you realize they only like you because they think you're like them because you look like them you gotta you gotta cut them loose they are dead weight you gotta get rid of them amen to that and kathy lacy this is why zan has not yet accepted your friend request on facebook (laughs) (laughs) kathy lacy i have blocked your ass (laughs) (laughs) and rachel when it comes to you what were your thoughts on kathy yeah um kathy's character okay the one nice thing that i can say is (laughs) she really pulled off that dress that she wore which she wore to the first party mm-hmm. um <laughs> when she meets him in the elevator and it opens it up she's like Ta-da! and he's like "Ooh!" it was like yeah she, she looked really good so there <laughs> there's some <laughs> there's a check in the plus collar for kathy um but yeah no kathy is like every 
family member and friend that I know even now that on the surface they're like, oh, they're a good person. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they don't match the image of like what we've seen in the media, you know, with like, uh, God, it seems like five million years ago, you know, the, the guys in the polo shirts marching down the street with their tiki torches oh, or, yeah, you know, Charlotte. the, yeah, the, Charlottesville. The Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, the people that, there, the insurrection at the Capitol back in January. Um, you know, those people like that, it's like, it's really easy. You know, people were like immediately as things were going on, like blasting them all over, you know, social media and letting like their employers and, you know, everybody know it's like, look, this person's a bigot, you know, take them out like the trash that they are. But then you've got the people that don't, go to the extremes like that but you know you get together at a birthday party or something back when we could do that um or a family get together during the holidays and somebody will say something you know tell a off-color joke or use a term that's not you know pc for lack of a better term Mm. and you, you know, somebody like me, it, you hear it, you register it, it makes you uncomfortable. And I will be honest, for the longest time, I kept my mouth shut. I would have that moment of, oh, well, that wasn't very kosher, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, sorry. Um, you know, that's not cool uh, for somebody to say something like that, but you're in a group and you don't want to ruffle any feathers and nobody else is saying anything so you just let it go and you move on um filled with silent murderous rage (laughs) yeah exactly but i've gotten to the point now where i will i've called people out when Mm. they've they've said something you know they've said something about you know talking about something that was on the news and they make some offhanded comment you know it's like oh you know I bet they were black or whatever and Mm -hmm. I'm like well what's that have to do with anything and they just give me this look and they just like well I exactly what Kathy started to do when she got she would get called out where she just she couldn't make an argument a valid argument because she realized that you know there was no valid argument for what she just said. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, just uh, she hits really close to home even now, oh, um, yes. which is sad and uncomfortable in itself. And but I, I would hope that there would be more people like Phil and Dave who, when somebody says something they jump on it and ask that person to elaborate and actually think about what it is they said, because, uh, you know, this may just be the optimist in me thinking (laughs) it's like genuinely some of these people are not bad people. They've just been programmed Mm. 
and they just we they've just become parrots and they just repeat what they've heard in other probably other social situations at dinner parties or whatever and they want to be part of the group they don't want to be singled out um so they just they and eventually they just kind of become numb to it and find themselves repeating those same things that they've heard other people say and have not been called out on it and therefore you know nobody's getting called out on it so it must be okay you know it's like the um we've seen videos of um african-american like rap you know hip-hop performers you know doing their thing and they'll be on the edge of the stage and they'll like you know the crowd's singing along and dancing and whatever and they'll like you know, point their their microphone down into the crowd because the crowd's singing along too and you'll get some white person that's knows all the lyrics but then the n-word is in part of the lyrics and they say it yes <laughs> because they don't think about it they're you know it's like oh this is this artist they say it it's in the words and therefore it's part of the song and therefore it must be okay to say it's like no it's not okay <laughs> and it's really not okay for that you know the artist to be saying it either in my opinion too but we can get under that actually if when we talk about the secretary because i think she's a good example of that yep oh. very very true rachel and uh, you know it actually makes me think of this is why country once country star i don't know if you'll ever be a country star again morgan wallen is now no longer a household name because of that one incident where he did use the n-word and boom he's gone and you know mm-hmm. i'm not i am not surprised and, you know, to your point, Rachel, I mean, if there is, I think when it comes to Kathy's character, anything worse than a, than a racist, it's a passive person who just sits there and takes it. And I think the old adage of, you know, bad things happen when good people don't do anything about it is very much a, uh, applicable to this. As I did mention that towards the, movie, the, the movie's end, she was disgusted by one of her party guests that you actually pointed out as well, the bigoted joke, but did nothing about. And, and what really stung me as Zan was pointing out, is how she talks to Tommy. You know, of course, so we, and we'll talk about Dean Stockwell for sure. As, as Zan was saying, she doesn't decry the fact that he was beaten up and called a dirty Jew, but simply points out that the kids were wrong because he isn't Jewish. And I was like, seriously? You know, but this is a great contrast also, I think, to the talk that Philip had had earlier with Tommy in the film. And I love that little conversation the two of them had about uh, when Tommy asks him what Jews are. I actually was kind of enraptured, kind of just sitting there watching, seeing how is Phil going to explain this to his son? And added to this, you know, if Kathy really does love Phil, you'd think she'd be more concerned about him being happy rather than being worried about what her sister Jane and their white privileged friends will say. And sadly, I have known people just like Kathy who say they're not racist but will passively embrace anti-Semitism and go with it, like you were saying as well, Rachel, due to peer pressure or status. And it's so depressing that we still have people like this. And added to that, you know, the fact that she compares being Jewish to the same thing as being poor or ugly and that she is happy that she is beautiful, white and Christian. I'm like, okay, those are yours. That's your scale of values. That's the door. But on the plus Mm -hmm. side, on the plus side, I was glad. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I well, that's, that's the real Kathy. I mean, that, yeah, those, yeah, you're right. that's the real Kathy. Um, and why he stays with her. 
no beyond idea. me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's really beyond all of us, I think, David. And and on the plus side, I was glad that by movie's end, her character does some miraculous soul searching and realizes the mistakes she had made. And she says, you know, to Phil's childhood friend Dave and decides to really take a stand. So I suppose for 1947, it's like major redemption for the character. And I suppose this is possibly me what Laura Z. Hobson was trying to say with this character as well. So from a terribly conflicted character, let's look at the woman Philip should have gone for and a woman I would go out partying with any day of the week, Celeste Holm as Anne Detry, whom we actually will get to talk about uh, when we discuss all about Eve. She was also in high society and is known for originating the role of Addo Annie in Oklahoma. And she was also, of course, mother to Ted Nelson, the man behind Project Xanadu, and is known for inventing the terms virtuality, hypertext, and hypermedia. So crazy stuff for sure. Zan, when it came to you, what were your thoughts on Anne Detry? Hands down my favorite character in this movie. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> the, <laughs> the way I describe her is that she is a Mae West that you can take home to your mother. <laughs> She's... She's funny. She's body when she knows that it's appropriate. She, you can take her to meet any of your friends and she will be able to have a conversation. You know, she meets Dave once and they're like best buds. You know, she's just really a wonderful person. And you know, she's extremely talented and confident because otherwise, how could she also be a writer at this magazine in this, you know, in this old, you know, good old boys club that is everything back in 1947. <laughs> so you really get the idea that she knows that she she has something to offer and she's not going to take anybody's crap about it. And she's not going to listen to anyone who tells her that she needs to go back in the kitchen. And so I think she's a wonderful character for that reason. But she is the great example of somebody who is not just not bigoted, but she is anti-bigoted. And... We find that out in that scene where they are talking about the hotel they're going to stay at for their honeymoon. And when Kathy says to her, oh, but Anne, are you sure? Have you been there recently? She says, um, she says, no, I haven't. And I'm sure. And what that statement says to me is, no, I haven't been there recently because I know they are a restricted hotel. I don't go there because I know they're restricted. I'm not Jewish, but I'm not going somewhere that does stupid crap like that, that restricts Jewish people. So I really loved her for that. And I thought that was a great piece of writing to give you that information very subtly that she's not going to get into it with Kathy because she probably knows. And she does. She goes and tells Philip like, yeah, that girl is crap. <laughs> you, should, you should not be with her. She's a piece of work, my friends. And you can you can tell that she probably has a hard time finding a guy and keeping a guy because she is so headstrong, and it is 1947. Yeah. So it, it's it's a sad thing that. And, and we still, I mean, that's, that's another discussion we could have. You know, we still have a word, world full of men that don't like it when women speak their mind and don't like it when women are very talented or as talented or more talented than they are. We don't like it when women are confident. We don't like it when women are funnier than them or, <laughs> or smarter than them or 
better in a social situation with them or the bosses like them more. You know, we don't, men don't like that. We still have that culture. So that's a sad thing in itself. But she figures out that Kathy's no damn good. And she doesn't want to get into it with her because this is supposed to be a happy time and they're supposed to be planning their honeymoon and she's happy for Philip because she's Philip's friend, but she doesn't, she doesn't get it. Like, I think we've all had that friend at some point where you're like, really, you're doing this. Okay. (laughs) As long as you're happy and you're being treated. Okay. I suppose, but I don't get it. And that's where, that's where she is with this. She's not going to start in with her about her politics and, and what she is, but she just says, um, no, I haven't, and and I'm sure. Yeah. And I love that about this character because that's what that's what needs to happen. You need to, as an ally, you need to do things like don't go to the bakery that won't make a a wedding cake for a gay couple. Um, mm-hmm. You don't you don't buy the really delicious pimento cheese that you love at Costco. That's made by the company that denounces Black Lives Matter as much as you love their cheese. I haven't you had Chick Fil A in years. In years, <laughs> yes. You don't. I was. I was just getting to that one. And you do not eat at Chick Fil A, even if you are not gay, even if you are not black, if you are not Jewish, if you are not transgender, if you are not Muslim, whatever it is. If there is somebody who is bigoted towards those people. You don't give them the time of day. You don't patronize their establishment. And Anne knows this. And I love that about her. And Celeste Holm is just perfect. She delivers her lines just, you know, with with laser-like precision. She's gorgeous. She's, you, you, and you have her, you have that range with her where you see her as being just, you know, tons of fun and right there with you and witty and interesting and smart. And then when she's when she's alone and she's talking to Philip about like, yeah, it's probably better that she's gone. You can see that she's very vulnerable and she would maybe like a guy like Philip that understands her and agrees with her and understands her business and doesn't think it's a problem that she has a job. And you, you really see that vulnerability. And I think she does a fantastic job of showing that range. And, you know, you get the feeling, you know, look how well she gets along with Dave. Like, if, and you know, if Dave wasn't married... It would probably have been the two of them winding up at the end of this movie, but she probably gets she probably gets that a lot. You know, once a you know once a man is not trying to be the alpha male in a relationship, they can probably relate to her on a on more of her level. And so she's and she even says it. You know, why are the um I, I don't remember, but she, why are all the good men like you guys either married or about to get married or something like that? You know, it's like. You know, the, the the thing we say now out loud is why are all the best guys married or gay? <laughs> but she was essentially saying the 1947 version of that. <laughs> so I, I really loved the, it was subtle, but again, it was 1947. So I have to, I have to be, make allowance for the fact that they're really trying and really doing very, very well for 1947. The portrayal of anti-bigotry in her not just i'm not a bigot but she is anti-bigotry on all levels and i loved that i loved her she was she was the the best one in this movie and the fact that she didn't win the oscar for best supporting actress makes me very depressed (laughs) she actually did win oh she won this yes she won who am i I, what am i thinking of then (laughs) well it was it was definitely very very go ahead Ted. 
Uh, Claire, Claire Trevor won for uh, Key Largo. Oh yeah, okay. she didn't win. I'm looking. No, I'm looking at the wrong year. I'm looking at the wrong year. Nope, right. Yeah, she won Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. you got to look at the right year. Thank you. Thank you. One for much. the rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. You may have been thinking of uh, of uh, Dorothy McGuire. She was nominated but didn't win. <laughs> and and you know, Gregory, you know and Gregory Peck didn't win for Best Actor. Uh, yeah, Gregory Gregory Peck didn't win, and uh, what I'm thinking of is for supporting. I would have liked to, you know, I know John Garfield was nominated for Best Actor for Bonnie and Soul, but I would have really liked to have seen him as Best Supporting Actor for Dave, and he didn't even get nominated. So mm-hmm. that's where my supporting actor thing is. I apologize for my brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least hopefully you can feel a little bit more vindicated now, Zad, and happier about it. <laughs> I'm so excited now. I'm so happy. Go <laughs> well, Celeste Holmes. There you go. And, and Rachel, what were your thoughts on Anne? Uh, yeah, she, yeah, hopefully after the, uh, you know, the credits roll at the end of this movie that, you know, when Phil shows up at Kathy's place that they talk it out and realize that uh, uh, while he's more than happy to support her uh, in her newfound uh, wokeness, um, that they probably should not be getting married and he's going to go with her <laughs> Instead. So great. <laughs> In a perfect world, yes. Yeah. Uh unfortunately that's probably not what happened, but um but yeah, no, she's just she is everything that Kathy should aspire to be, really. Um, you know, she's she she's cool and sophisticated, you know, working at the magazine, but she's not pretentious about it you know when you know even though she you know she hosts a party with all these people she's not you know which she you know still does does her job of introducing people to people and making connections but she's not not like when they go to kathy's sister's party and everyone just seems a little you know little nose stuck uppy even for the lack of uh gatekeeping who actually showed up um so uh but yeah she she just seems like a, a cool gal and uh hopefully she finds mr right <laughs> at some point after the movie it's over even if it's not phil or or dave or something and hopefully she sticks around and gets to be maybe the cool aunt to little tommy yes aunt very very well said yeah because i think the the just the the rapport between her and tommy was just beautiful because you're kind of while kathy was like you know oh don't worry sweetie you're not jewish i mean compared to Anne, who's like you know the cool aunt who gets it it's like yeah definitely i i'm totally with you on that rachel for sure and david what were your thoughts on this character well i i I would have voted um for her for best actress best supporting actress in a heartbeat, I thought she was fabulous, and she she was instantly likable. Um, the the way she played the character and the lines that Moss Hart gave her, I mean, right from the start, the minute that very first scene that she appears, I mean, you're she's the engaging character in that movie. I mean, you you just mentioned that she would be Tommy's aunt. It in a there, there were similarities between her role and the role, I believe it was Rosalind Russell who plays in Auntie Mame. Mm-hmm. Um, both of both movies sort of t- 
take on uh, the establishment of Darien, Connecticut. And in uh, Auntie Mame, there, she, her, her godson, I guess, is is about to marry someone from uh, from Darien, Connecticut. Um, he's he's sort of New York sophisticated, and she's of the Darien Country Club set. And and Auntie Mame calls her an Aryan from Darien, which <laughs> is the best line in the movie. Um, <laughs> There was there was one I thought really interesting. The, the most interesting scene was when Anne is really telling uh, Phil, you know, you need to take a a real look, an honest look at who you're marrying because there there's there's a real uh, she is the thing that you are. Uh, crusading against, and he doesn't want to hear it. Um, so, you know, in a way, he's doing what Anne does. I mean, you know, when he tells her she's she's not, she doesn't see what she's doing, she doesn't want to hear it, and that's not a good thing in Phil's estimation. But when Anne tells Phil, you know, you're not looking at the real situation with uh with uh, Kathy, he doesn't want to hear it either. So there's a, there's a kind of mirroring behavior going on in in, um, in those two characters, and I thought that was fascinating. Um, and she she's just she's wonderful. Uh, it's just a wonderful character, and I think Moss Hart poured his heart into into that this character and and uh, the Dave character. Those those are the two people he. He really gave the best lines to in the uh, in the show, um, but I, I would never have voted for this movie to be best picture. Never. <laughs> well, when we do get to that, of course, we'll definitely have to. That that would be interesting when we get to that for sure, David. And you know, as much as I severely disliked Kathy, I of course absolutely adored Anne. And you know, as I mentioned, of course, she's one of the coolest cats in this film. As she's fun. She's a party girl with a heart of solid gold, and she clearly loves Phil, but has never found the moment to tell him how she feels, or when she does, obviously the timing is always wrong. And I did kind of hope that by movie's end, like you guys, Philip would have realized this, but I guess it would have taken away from the story and point maybe this film is trying to make, as from the moment they meet, she immediately seems dejected when he points out he's with someone and is actually engaged to someone else, and I suppose for the time she can she's definitely can be considered incredibly progressive and forward thinking and I got the impression that she's completely blind when it comes to racism as to her people are just people and she's the friend anybody would love to have and I think she's incredibly selfless as she does put aside her own emotions and her wants and her needs in order to help other people. And at times, I do wonder whether Phil even deserves such a fantastic character, who, <laughs> who, who to quote Zan, deserves all the nice things. This woman deserves all the nice things. And as the only time she openly puts her heart on the line in a desperate attempt to hopefully win Phil over, I think she knows in her heart of hearts it's just not going to happen. And I felt so bad for her, because that's the one moment where I believe you, Zan, you were pointing out that she kind of shows some vulnerability 
and it just doesn't work for her. And I was just like, oh, man, you know, I, I was really like so upset. I was like, let me get my phone and, and send her a message saying we're going out for drinks. And seriously, but um, that said, as we are talking about Philip's friends, let's get to one of the two actual Jews in this film, Mr. John Garfield as Dave Goldman. And he was another of the big stars of Warner Brothers, who was one of the many victims of the HUAC communist hearings as he apparently denied any communist affiliation, but refused to give in any names. And this apparently had him axed from Hollywood. And some actually theorized that his untimely death at age 39 may have actually been due in part to the stress he suffered from persecution. So, Rachel, when it comes to this character, what were your thoughts on Dave Goldman? Um, you know, it, it, you know, it comes in a little late, even though Dave gets mentioned early on um it was nice that you know they actually brought that character in later um so that he could kind of give his i guess the actual jewish perspective mm -hmm. i guess because uh, at this point the, the like the whole premise of the story is you know anti-semitism and how rampant it is and we see that but we don't actually see it happen to like a Jewish per an actual Jewish person's face right. um, or a Jewish person experiencing it, you know, being in the same room while somebody is saying something until Dave shows up. Um, so, uh, you know, it was, it was nice to see him in the, and I, once he shows up, I think that's when the movie really starts getting more meaty. Um, you know, they go out and that drunk guy, Mm. Um, you know, gets in Dave's face because he's like, I don't like officers, which I don't know what the guy has against military officers in the first place. And then he finds out he's Jew, you know, you know, is Jewish just based on his name, and then it's like, I don't like you even more. And I think Dave was totally justified in socking that guy right in the yes. jaw. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know that. Re, you know, and, and of course, you know, his friend is like, oh, you know, he just, he just gets mouthy when he's drunk. I'm like, eh, no, he's not saying anything that he isn't thinking when he's sober. Uh, his lips are a little looser now because of the alcohol. Um, but, you know, to see that, it's, it's to, you know, go back to best years of our lives. It's kind of like the, the, the scene at, this, at the soda fountain. Yeah. Uh, where the guy gets punched out and, <laughs> and you know goes flying into the glass play case, um, you know to to see those acts of aggression actually occurring makes it just so more. It makes it more realistic, and at the same time, it, it makes it very disheartening because there are people. I don't know what's scarier the the people that are like Kathy who just keep their mouth shut mm. or the tiki torch polo shirt wearers uh, that are just they they feel so emboldened to just be open out in public to show just how ignorant and bigoted and racist they are. Um, but uh, we need to see, you know, that, that range of 
what racism is, you know, not, you know, people think racism and they probably think of, you know, lynching mobs and, you know, groups of guys wearing white robes <laughs> and hoods and uh, things like that. And it's like, no, racism, like a lot of things, is a spectrum. And it's not just people yelling really bad words at the group that their vitriol is game aimed towards but there are people like that and they need to be shown the door as well it very i am totally with you rachel and david what were your thoughts on on dave goldman it's a great character and it was it was beautifully acted um the dave character is is you know the movie got a lot of um it's not a uh, maybe i keep i keep going back to i don't like the movie that much <laughs> but um even Kazan didn't think it was his his best work or even good work um in in time gentleman's agreement is an important movie it's just not a very good movie and it's important because it it really was the first you know it was a major attempt to address the issue of anti-semitism coming so close after the holocaust but it it goes after it so gingerly. Um, it really goes after the polite uh, sort of low-level prejudice uh, that that is that dem- that is demonstrated by by the the characters of you know most of the characters in the movie at one point or another. Um, it doesn't take on the the really horrendous uh, anti-Semitic uh, destruction of European Jewry uh, that 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 was so close to that time. I mean, it just and the character of Dave, the one scene where it talks about the guy who gets blown up and then um, the the contemptuous the last words that he hears um, are contemptuous uh, anti-Semitic story. That's as close as the movie gets to outright violent anti-Semitism. And Dave's character is, I don't put up with this. I've learned that it's part of my life. Mm. Um, you know, there, there are degrees, and I, I, I'm not surprised when it happens. If it does happen, I don't put up with it. Um, and he's, he's a, in his own way, he's, quiet, he's quietly a very heroic character. Uh, and it's it, there's such strength in the way that Garfield plays the character. Um, he when he talks to Kathy, uh, it's not unkind, but it's it's the truth is I don't want to say vicious, but it's he's he's being acidic. In there's an acid like mm-hmm. sweetness in his. In his the way he talks with her, I mean, he's not pulling any punches with her, and uh, he gives her what she, you know, um, he, he tells her what she needs to hear, uh, whether she'll accept it or not. That's not up to him, but he he dishes it out, and it's it's uh, if if I think if any of if people saw themselves in the Anne character. Oh, I'm sorry. In the in the Kathy character, 
that was the hardest thing part of the movie to see so true and and zan what were your thoughts on on dave goldman just exactly what you just said is that he's he's a wonderful wonderful character it's you know knowing that it's john garfield just makes it makes you want to cry and i'll talk more about that when we give our final thoughts but my heart really broke for this character because he's so resigned to the fact that this is the way it is and mm. not that he's resigned in the fact that he's not going to do anything about it he is going to fight back and he is going to he's not going to be silent but he just even the way he talks about it so nonchalantly like it's like it's like it's a cold it's like it's like yeah you got a cold i feel you man I mean, it, it's that kind of oh, what's the word constant in his life the scene where he's talking to philip and he says yeah these are the times when it really gets to you is when it gets to your kids and you know i you know me not being jewish if somebody told me this i'd be like let's go find their parents and beat them up and <laughs> wash their tires. Like I would have this like white hot rage, but his white hot rage has turned into an eternal flame. It's there. It's burning, but it's not a flash. that's going to burn everybody's eyebrows off the second he opens his mouth, which is what would happen if I said something about it or um, somebody like Anne would say something or even Philip, you know, Philip with his like, it's like, are you going to tell me if this hotel is restricted or not? You know, and he's not saying, you know, he's not really telling him anything, but he's just, he's getting really mad at the fact that they're not right out saying, oh no, we stopped that policy. <laughs> he's just getting really angry. So that, that, that sort of slow burn that he has in his soul that he's been, he's been dealing with forever and what it must have been like for him and his family during the war and before the war. And just you think about everything he's heard and everything he's experienced. And based on what happened when they were at the restaurant with the, you know, I hate officers and I especially hate dirty Jew officers. Um, he used the K word, but mm. I don't want to say that because <laughs> it's, I, I was, I, you know, anti-Semitism was something that did not touch me. So when I hear these these slurs, I think, why would you even say that? And what does that even mean? <laughs> like, it makes no sense. And it just it, it's it's very uncomfortable saying it out loud, even for the purposes of example. <laughs> and like Rachel said, I'm not going to sing a rap song at a concert and use the N word just because it's there. Um, so imagine what it must have been like for him to be an officer with guys that probably treated him like this, that didn't respect him because they were a different religion and so and david you're right i love how he has that moment with kathy where he's 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 not harsh with her he's he's not kind with her either but he's matter of fact with her he just asked her he put it all back on her what did you do what did you say? What did anyone else say? And made her realize he didn't lecture her. He didn't yell at her. 
he didn't because I, I'm sure he's known a lot of people who are well. I hate it, but what can I do? I'm one person. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is. We have a gentleman's agreement not to sell our house to Jews. Sorry, bye. He's heard this before, and he's you know this character is such a such a smart man that he's figured out a way to make people look at themselves with just a few questions. Just very, he's not yelling, he's not nasty, just very matter of fact. What would you say when he did that? What did you do? Did you call him on it? You know, just just all of these very wait a minute, I didn't, and made her really look inside herself. And that was just so phenomenal. And I feel like if we could all have, because I know I don't have that. Um, I don't have that in me because that, it, you know, when I see something like that, it just makes me too mad that I just get like sarcastic and mouthy. <laughs> and I And I want to be more like him. I want to be the type of person who will say these quick you know, these questions and, and calmly turn it around on somebody else like he's he's a wonderful character he's a heartbreaking character you really want him to succeed you really hope at the end that when you find out that kathy has given him the house because he's gonna have to not take a job because people won't rent him an apartment mm-hmm. i mean it's ridiculous what he's going through and you really hope that Kathy isn't going to be all, well, I did my part. I gave him the house and not also help advocate for him because you're, you're pretty sure that Philip is going to, but you really, really hope that Kathy keeps it up. But you know, when he moves into this neighborhood, he's going to have some problems. And so your heart is a little bit broken for him, but he's just such a, an amazing person and played so well by John Garfield that you just, you you really really and 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 being in the future you're just you're you're so sad that you weren't able to give him a better world <laughs> i mean the oh. world gets a little bit better but not better enough I, I totally Zan. And you know what? There were moments where I was kind of like, where's Shoshana Dreyfus when you need her? Seriously, from Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. I just wanted Shoshana to show up, but you know, I guess that, that wasn't gonna happen. But you know, the character of Dave Goldman, I think, is you know, kind of one half of a contrast of how Jews live through and deal with the surrounding anti-Semitism. And I think he is the opposite side of the coin of Elaine Wales, whom we will actually get to shortly, because Granted, we don't see much of Dave within this film, but what we do get is enough to kind of get this character. And I feel it pretty much is a vehicle to represent kind of how certain Jews dealt with the hostile feelings shown them. Because he does say it's water off his back and he's almost gotten used to being mistreated. But we do see that unlike other passive characters, when he is openly provoked at the restaurant and loses it, had it been me, I probably would have gone even further than that, but never mind. Uh, but uh, other than that, uh, I loved the character the, about this character is that he is, we see how tough life was for a Jew and incredibly more so in this time period. And he never plays the victim and literally refutes the poor, poor Jew stereotype, which I feel was an excellent choice. And add to that, the talk, like you guys were all mentioning, he has with Kathy is pivotal, obviously, to her changing her ways and deci- deciding to move from being a passive person to one of action. And he has that beautiful street wisdom and philosophy, which I love. And possibly 
he is one of the best friends one could ever have. And I was kind of rooting for him and Anne getting together. But, you know, he is a married man, so that ain't going to happen. So let's look at another very poignant character in this, at least in my opinion, Canadian vaudeville actress, dancer and stage director June Havoc as Elaine Wales, whom my listeners might actually know from General Hospital. And fun fact, her older sister was none other than striptease performer Gypsy Rose Lee. So, David, starting here with you, what were your thoughts on Elaine Wales? Um. I found her to be a very sad character. I, I had um, I had a, a sympathy for her um, on the one hand because what she did, she did to basically, you know, one could say it was a survival skill, like a, um, you know, like a, an, an animal that changes whose coping skill is chameleon-like. Um, she and and over the years, um, you know, I've known people uh, of an older generation than mine that that did change their names so that they could get into a competitive college, that they could, um, um, you know, the reason in New York City, the reason that there's a Mount Sinai and a Beth Israel Hospital is that Jewish doctors were not allowed to practice in. Um, uh, New York Presbyterian and um, some of the other hospitals. I mean, the reason that there were quote Jewish law firms was that um, you you couldn't uh, Jews were not hired at white glove legal firms. Um, certainly in Boston and New York, that was the case. Um, Harvard had had uh, quota systems. Uh, Yale had quota systems for uh, minorities. Um, they didn't want too many of those uh, people in in their institutions. And so people did change their names. So there was a reality to that. Um, and that, that hurts. Um, I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's a way to get ahead in the world. On the other hand, um, it's a way to scar your, um, your psychic sense of self, um, to have to be, to have to do that at someone, you know, in order to, uh, to do it in, in a way at someone else's bidding. And, um, but she's, you know, she she's internalized that um, uh, that that prejudice so much so that she does she's not like one of them. She doesn't want them um, who who would compromise her own standing um, in in the the organization to be a part of it. So she's. I found her to be both sympathetic and pathetic. Um, and uh, she was certainly unaware that um, I think that 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 she had that the compromises that she had made had so um, wounded and affected and 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 damaged her. Um, the mm. fact that the fact that um, Phil had to had to explain it to her um, wasn't very respectful in a way. Um, but, uh, she, I mean, she did serve the purpose and she served it well of, of demonstrating, you know, what had happened to, um, what coping mechanisms and, and the consequences, um, that a lot of people who, who were subject to 
these kinds of hiring and and uh, admission procedures were forced to undertake. Yes, very well said. And Zan, what were your thoughts on Elaine Wales? My heart just broke for her hmm. because she, like like Dave, she had obviously seen some things and heard some things and probably had been told by her parents you know don't you know we have to act a certain way when you're at school with other with other gentile kid you know whatever she she seemed like she was beaten down by this process so she hid from it she was able to quote unquote pass and so changed her name, got a job, and which that whole story infuriated me because that's still happening today. Mm. There, there have been studies where you send in a resume, the exact same resume, but with different names. One sounds Middle Eastern, one name sounds like it might be from a black family or something, and the white one gets a call back and the other one's don't. It, it's mm. still happening today. It's insidious. Mm-hmm. So... You know, my heart was breaking hearing her tell this story, thinking like, oh, my God, are we still are we still dealing with this? Is this how long this has been going on? And just her whole idea of, like I said before, she's sort of the self-loathing minority mm-hmm. where she's almost embarrassed to be associated with other Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And she's got that mentality. She reminds me a little bit of the Ruby Baptiste character in Lovecraft country. Mm-hmm. Who's, you know, trying her, she's trying to be the first black woman to work at Marshall fields. And she has a line where she says, if more black folks thought like I did, we would maybe be further along. Mm-hmm. And you just want to say, no, if more white folks didn't think like white folks, then you'd be further along. It's not, yes. it's not you. It's not on you. <laughs> you know, I don't care if, you know, what I can't even, I, I, I'm not even sure what the negative stereotypes about you. Like I said, you know, growing up, one of my closest friends was Jewish. So, but nobody said anything to her. Like, I, I, I think it was just sort of a, and if anybody said anything to her, it was when I wasn't around. Like, I think they knew I would have smacked him in the face. So, you know, there's there's negative stereotypes about Jewish people. I'm not even sure 100% what they are. Um, but, you know, even she is buying into that with like, oh, you don't want the wrong kind of Jews working here. And you just want to say, we don't want the wrong kind of anybody working here. If you think somebody's not going to act right, we shouldn't hire them regardless. And it's not like you have to weed out the Jews because there's more Jews that don't act the way you think they should than other people. I mean, this is, again, it's not on them. <laughs> if they, if, if they're not, if, if they're not up to the job or if they're, you know, have the wrong personality or whatever that, you know, get hire them first and then figure that out and then write them up for being inappropriate at work. I don't know what you do, but don't, <laughs> you don't just say, don't open the door for Jews because the bad ones might come in. That's exactly what we're going through right now with, we shouldn't have immigrants because some of them are criminals. It's like, no, we should prosecute the criminals and let the good ones go to school. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not on them. It's not on, it's, it's on us. It's on the, the people who are, 
it's on it's on the white people to be better. I'm just gonna say that it's on the white Gentile Christian people to be better people. Mm-hmm. It's not anybody. It's not anybody else's responsibility. So the idea that she feels like she's the anti-Semitic equivalent of it's my fault I was raped because I wore this outfit. That she's doing everything she can to not sound Jewish, look Jewish, have a Jewish name, act the way that she thinks the Gentiles want her to act so she can get ahead in a world that shouldn't be the way it is. And so I understand feeling beaten down by the world. I understand feeling, and especially because she's a woman, she's got, she has two strikes against her. She's Jewish and a woman. It's going to be hard enough to get a job in a man's world. You know, the second she gets married, they're probably going to, they're probably going to think she, she's going to quit. So they're going to start shopping around her, her job before she's ready to go. That kind of thing that would happen. But I, I understand being beaten down by that. I understand being, I under, you know, I, I know that this is wrong, but I have to eat. I have to do something. I have to get some sort of job. Yeah. Um, I understand thinking, yes, I don't you know, and Rachel can probably agree with me on this. It's like, we're so, it's so ingrained in us as women that there are so many negative things about us that there were, there's periods in your life where you're like, but that's not, I'm not like that. I'm different. I'm not a gold digger. I'm not a, (laughs) you say that, but then you realize, wait a minute, that's not my problem. That's their problem for prejudging me. Mm -hmm. And so I get where she's coming from, why she why she feels like she has to, but my heart breaks for her that she feels like she has to. And again, this is a hindsight thing. It would be nice if she could be more like Dave and, and, and rather than have her flame put out, you know, it turns into a slow burning eternal flame that she still keeps inside of her rather than hiding who she is. It would be nice for her if she were like that. And my heart breaks that she doesn't feel like she can be. Oh, nice. And Rachel, what were your thoughts on this character? Yeah, she was... My opinion of her changed Yeah, when when we're first introduced to her and, you know, she, she tells Phil about how, you know, she was looking for a job and uh, would, you know, fill out forms or make phone calls or, you know, whatever... And uh, would never hear anything back. And the minute she changed her name, boom, she's got a job at the same place that didn't give her a second glance the mm. first time around. Um, and I felt for her uh, to to hear her experience. But then when, um, but then when she and Phil are having the conversation after um, the incident with the, the HR manager and she starts using, you know, slurs and trying to justify her use of it because she even uses it in reference to herself. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> it's, still not, it's still not right. You know, you can't be like, well, yes, I'm a Nazi, but I'm one of the good ones. Mm. You know, Sorry, that uh, doesn't fly around here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, 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 you can be uh, a member of 
an oppressed group and be an oppressor to that group. We have seen that. Unfortunately, recently, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it, it's staggering the number, in my, at least in my mind, the number of African-American people and Hispanics that voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, and other members of the Republican Party. It's like, this is a group that is actively trying to oppress your group. And yet, that, family, that, that woman who was married to a man from Mexico... They voted for Trump, and when they deported him, they said, we didn't think he would send back the good ones. Like, they mm -hmm. literally said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's people like that. It's like, well, just because I'm a member of that group, therefore, I am allowed to... You know, use these words, and again, it's kind of like the you know the the hip hop using like the n word, and it's like you know I I can understand you know maybe it's like a power thing you know take control of the word mm -hmm. and change its you know the way it's perceived, but at the end of the day, that's just a bad word that nobody should use for <laughs> any reason <laughs> at any time. Um, so, yeah, when, when she, you know, started making these comments showing just how bigoted she herself is about her own group that she's part of. Yeah, my opinion never changed. I'm like, you know, I felt sympathetic for you, but now I'm just like, you need to have a, have you met Dave? <laughs> <laughs> now that Dave is sticking around <laughs> and got this new job, you maybe need we Dave. should have like a weekly like luncheon or something. <laughs> You know, yes. <laughs> something. <laughs> exactly. Let me tell you about this guy I know called Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I was rather conflicted with this character as I got the impression that she was almost an example of what some folks dub as the self-hating Jew and may possibly be one of the most almost open anti-Semites in this film. As at first you feel bad that she had to change her name in order to get a job. And, you know, granted her name was Wailstein, I believe many Jews, you know, had to do this to fit in and avoid persecution and would change their last names to cities or countries. Case in point, a certain Irving Berlin. And it also was very common over here in Italy as well for Italian Jews to share surnames with cities. And that's why today you actually do get a lot of Italian Jews who have um, na their last names are named after cities. But when it came to the character, I was kind of disgusted with her self-loathing when she was kind of distinguishing, like you guys were pointing out, between good Jews and bad Jews. And the fact that she used both the Y word and the K words to describe herself when she did something stupid. I was just disgusted by that. Maybe I'm taking this too much to heart, but that was the vibe I got from her. I mean, it was like... Uh, you were saying, Rachel, like, you know, you've been a Nazi, but you're one of the good ones. It's like looking at you, Albert Speer, who everybody's like, you know, he wasn't one of the bad ones. Seriously, I'm glad that's all I'm going to say. So lastly, let's look at two other very significant characters and two very strong performances. On one hand, we had Anne Revere as Mrs. Green and Dean Stockwell as Tommy <laughs> Green. And actually, when it comes to Anne, she was another of our actors who was blacklisted by the House on American Activities Committee, and you may know her from such films as The Song of Bernadette and National Velvet, 
And well, Dean Stockwell, I need not explain this character to fans of Quantum Leap, Battlestar Galactica, and of course, Blue Velvet, and tons of other things. Rachel definitely knows what I'm talking about. And I'm sure Zan definitely knows as well. Coming to you, Zan, you know, I mentioned Blue Velvet. First off, was it weird seeing Dean as an 11, 12-year-old? And what were your thoughts on this character and Mrs., uh, Mrs. Green? Well, no, Dean, I've seen him in other things as a child, so okay. I, I was like, oh, yeah, hey, it's little, Dean, little baby Dean Stockwell. <laughs> and it, it's so interesting to watch him as a child or watch someone like Roddy McDowell. Yes. You, know, you, get, you know, Roddy McDowell, Dean Stockwell, these are two unmitigated success stories of child and actors. Roddy McDowell made an appearance on Quantum Leap. <laughs> <laughs> there you circle. go. Full circle. Rachel, I have, I have to tell you that when... Um, Phil, Philip left Tommy to make his own breakfast and he's like kind of looking at the egg like what do I do with this my first thought was like Gushy how do I try how do I crack an egg yeah <laughs> Ziggy I need a recipe for poached eggs yeah exactly Ziggy what, what are the what are the, what are the what's the percentage that I'm going to burn the house down to cracking this and trying to make eggs for myself so I, yeah I, I think Dean Stockwell is a fan is a fantastic actor and he he did a great job in this one as well and it, it, it's it's an interesting thing with children. He, he this character brings up the idea of how and when do you talk to your kids about this kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. And you know, do you wait until the subject presents itself? How do you know they're old enough to understand it? How do you know they're ready to to understand this? How do you know they're not? It, it's so difficult to know the right thing to do when it comes to children. And that's why I'm glad the Tommy character was in this movie. Because when he says, hey, dad, what's Jewish? Yeah. And he explains to him, well, it's a religion. And some people are this and some people are that. You know, He's very matter of fact about it. But I don't feel like he gives him enough information. I mean, I feel like Tommy, obviously Tommy is old enough to be experiencing bigotry because he gets beaten up the second people think he's Jewish. So, you know, I feel like people, you know, they gave him something about what anti-Semitism is, but it was a very sort of like, well, it's when people don't like Jewish people. And it was really, (laughs) it was really, um, uh, surface i thought like but again that's another that's another thing you can only know with your own child when it's ready you have to know your child to do it there's not like when they're seven tell them about racism you know you have to you have to have that conversation when you know your kid is ready and can comprehend what's going on and you know he he um I don't remember. Do the do the schoolyard kids that beat him up? Do they call him the K word or not? I don't remember. I believe they do. Yes, it is mentioned. Yeah, I think they do. So that whole thing, like I said, I think I was in my thirties before I ever heard what the K word was, and it just, like I said, it never came up. Even though I was, you know, I had really close Jewish friends growing up. Uh, you know, they probably didn't talk to me about it because they probably didn't want to talk about it. And nobody happened to call them that when I was around. So it just never, it never came up. And I never thought, you know, you never, you don't think to do things like 
you know, you don't Google derogatory terms for Jewish people, like just so you know what they are. Um, and I, you know, I, I had this conversation with someone recently because my office is actively trying to use inclusive language and get rid of terms that are, that have offensive origins, even though they're innocuous today, they have offensive origins. And we got into discussion about all the things we just never heard. We didn't, we didn't know. And unfortunately, most of the time I can ask my husband who is from the South, what does that mean? And he's like, Oh, that's this. Cause he's heard them all. Cause he's from the South. And the, the idea of, should he have explained to him like, Hey, if you ever hear kids on the playground, call someone the K word, it's not nice. And you should tell them it's bad. Or you should tell a teacher or, tell me and I'll talk to their parents, you know, does, do you tell kids that? Do you not? I mean, how much information is too much information? Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, Tommy didn't get enough information. I don't think because he was not equipped to defend himself in a day kind of a way when he got up in the schoolyard. Like, yes, Tommy knows he's not Jewish, and he could have said, you know, leave me alone. I'm not really Jewish. My dad's just pretending for his job. But he knew he wasn't supposed to do that. But I think that's all he knew. I don't think he knew how to how to say anything else. And why would he? he he's not Jewish. His father's not Jewish. He doesn't know Jewish people. He's never, he hasn't met Dave. So he doesn't have that ability. So I, you know, it, it, it really is his character is a really good description as to why you need to have these conversations with kids, but also lets you know that it's difficult to have these conversations with kids because you don't know what you should say and when and how much is too much and how much is too little. Yeah. And as for the, as for the character of um, Mrs. Green, I just absolutely loved her. I thought that they were, they seemed like a really close and loving functional family (laughs) they didn't seem dysfunctional at all um she seemed to really know her son you know those things where she says you know you wouldn't be you if you wrote it any other way and you know really knows her son and really wants to help but isn't any of those tropes that we saw in film around this time of the overbearing mother or the mother who's trying to control things or you know, she's not pushing for them to get married. She's just, you know, letting them do their thing. She's not trying to usurp his parental control over Tommy. You don't see any of those tropes with this mother character. And I absolutely, absolutely loved that. And she didn't look like she was that much older. <laughs> she looked older than Gregory Peck, but she didn't look like that. Again, that trope of the mother character with the gray bun and the apron. (laughs) I think in reality, she was like not that much older than Peck. Yeah, like six years (laughs) older. Yeah, Yeah. something like that. But but that idea that somebody can be a mother of a grown man and not be an irrelevant elderly person that you're just never going to listen to. I I liked that. I liked that about this, this story. And I liked how she was also, you know, you you obviously know that the Philip character grew up not being anti-Semitic because of ignorance, which is how I feel. I feel like nobody taught me how to be anti-Semitic. 
my Jewish friends didn't come to me with their with their problems when when someone called them names they didn't if it happened they didn't come to me about it all i knew is i loved my friends and if anybody and i but, but i you know i i i'm aware of the world <laughs> and i'm aware that there is anti-semitism but it just wasn't something that seemed like it made any sense to me and that for a long time like through, you know through my adolescence and through my young 20s that's where I left it. Like, okay, this doesn't make sense. But um, there, there's more to, we've talked about this before, there's being not bigoted and there's being anti-bigotry. And I think we all have to learn how to be actively anti-bigotry because we know in our hearts that we are bigoted because nobody taught us to be. Bigotry's taught yeah. And she's obviously a mother that never taught him bigotry at all. And that's another thing I love about her and how she's just ready for it. She's like, well, if you're Jewish, I guess I'm Jewish too. Okay. We're going to do this thing. <laughs> so she just went, she went against so many tr parental tropes in film that I thought it was, I thought her character was very cool. Awesome. And, uh, and Rachel, what were your thoughts on Mrs. Green and Tommy Green? Um, well, I mean, Tommy was adorable. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but when he is on screen, you know, he's adorable. Uh, it's always weird to see little Dean Stockwell because it's like <laughs> I logically know he started as a child actor, and actually his years as a child actor were quite rough on him. Um, but that's a different story for another time. Uh, but I just, I he's. Uh, also really adorable in uh, Anchors Away, <laughs> the Gene <laughs> Kelly movie. Um, and uh, it, it's wild to see him to know that, you know, in 40 years he's going to be wearing, you know, neon outfits, carrying <laughs> you know, the little handling going, gushy, you know, <laughs> yelling and beating the handling. Uh, it's so funny because he has, even as a child, he has some of the same mannerisms and facial motions that that the dean stockwell we know and love has so it, that's yeah always you can see the the future al calavici that's going to emerge in like <laughs> seriously uh it's a wonderful uh i love quantum leap anyway um so yeah he's adorable and uh yeah i think that uh the way that they handled uh the conversations that he you know him asking questions around the breakfast table as kids are want to do and to see you know uh, uh, Phil kind of squirm a little and because grandma you know Mrs. Green is not that overbearing trope she just kind of sits back and continues serving breakfast and you know squeezing the orange juice and stuff while she lets her son parent his son yeah. which is what he's supposed to do. And I think they handle it really well. And I think that the fact that he, you know, when they have the one conversation and he's like, dad, are we Jewish? And he's like, no. And he explains how he's pretending, um, you know, and, and, you know, he understands that and knows not to tell anybody at school or whatever, but then he gets beats up later but he still keeps his dad's secret um, is 
it's it's one of those things that it's like like Zane was saying, we're not born bigoted. You know, things like racism are taught, and kids are usually very colorblind. You know, you hear adults say, "Go, I don't see color." Little kids don't. True. They're the ones that could actually claim that they they don't recognize differences in other people until someone, usually an adult, points it out to them and teaches them that different equals bad. Um, so it probably didn't occur to them to give him something to say, you know, if he was approached by kids, you know, classmates that maybe have anti-Semitic viewpoints because little kids aren't supposed to be like that unless they're taught that by the adults around them. Um, so I think that's why it came as such a shock when Tommy comes home and he's like, I got beat up, you know. Um, and, you know, of course, Kathy's response is just awful. Uh, <laughs> you know. Um, so, but I thought the whole thing with, with, you know, Tommy was actually handled really well, all things uh, considering. Uh, and then Mrs. Green, um, yeah, I love that she does not fit a lot of those tropes that we see with, you know, when a grandparent is living with their adult child and there's maybe grandkids around and they feel like they still need to parent. Mm-hmm. Um, no, she's just there. She's just there hanging out, helping to cook because she knows she's the best cook. You know, even when Dave offers to cook when he's crashing on the couch, she's like, no, I am cooking. Because <laughs> I know you're going to be awful at it. I'm the best cook. Therefore, you know, I'm in the kitchen. Um, you know, and she does help out. You know, we see at the beginning that, uh, you know, she's taken to Tommy to go buy shoes and stuff. Um, but she's not being overbearing. She's just there to help support her, you know, her widowed son who's trying to raise this this young boy on his own in a new city, you know, with a new job and all the newness that comes with that, you know, new school and all those things. Um, and, you know, for someone who supposedly had a heart attack and a stroke in this movie, she looks really good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, and when she's having the, when she's, uh, you know, sitting on the couch or whatever, and, you know, she's talking about, you know, how proud she is after she's read some of, of of Phil's uh, articles, and you know she talks about well maybe you know this will be the 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 century of of people and and all of all of that and she talks about how she wants to stick around for a really really long time to see so in her mind society grow to be better mm. and in my mind I'm like. Girl, you better hope for immortality then, because <laughs> you're going to be living a long, long time if you're waiting for peace on earth and goodwill towards all men. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. It's a nice sentiment, but no. <laughs> I, I, I totally I totally hear you there, Rachel, for sure. And David, what were your thoughts on these two characters? Um, I, I thought uh, Ma, Ma, as he called her, um, <laughs> Which, of course, just make me keep thinking of Grapes of Wrath. Uh, 
and it, she sort of looked like she'd come out of that movie. Um, let me just say uh, again, going last, I, I think she got some of the best lines. Um, when she, th- there's this fabulous, just where where uh, Phil says, and the 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 owner of the company didn't think of it you know his his niece did and ma says yeah what do you think woman may have th- we'll, we'll be thinking next or something like that i mean it's a it's, <laughs> she's very progressive <laughs> it's, a, it's a great one line what you catch on the edge of that remark is is a, is great um and i i actually loved the the last line you know i'm going to stick around and see what the how this is all going to come out um i actually thought that the the scene with him sticking uh, with gregory peck sticking his head out of the shower trying to explain um you know religion to his his kid was was charming and uh, <laughs> believe me as someone who who did it did that in his professional life it's very difficult to um <laughs> to condense these sophisticated theological systems into, into anything that a young kid um, will, will understand. And, and I just want to share with you, when I was in rabbinic school, I, um, I actually had the opportunity to serve a, for one of our summer uh, recesses, a, a small congregation in Australia. So I'm flying down to Australia, and the, the plane actually stops in in the Cook Islands in in, uh, Rorotonga, um, you know, the middle of uh, oceanic nowhere, and some New Zealanders get on, and um, we start to chat, and the the man asks, what do you do? And I say, I'm I'm a rabbi. Uh, I'm studying to be a rabbi, and uh, I'm going to serve a congregation in, in Adelaide. And he goes, oh, very nice, very nice, and then says, What's a rabbi? <laughs> and I, you know, I think, well, a, a rabbi is—it's like a minister, or or uh, in Protestant denominations, or the priest in in uh, uh, Catholicism. A rabbi is the same, serves the same function in Judaism. And he goes, "Oh, yeah, that's that's nice, that's nice." And then he says, Ex- "Excuse me, what's Judaism?" <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay. If these are the questions he's asking, how on earth am I going to explain this? <laughs> and then he goes, wait, wait. You're the ones that wear the little hats, like in the Eddie Cantor story. <laughs> now this, that was it. I said, yeah, that's it. That's, that's kind it. of adorable. <laughs> I know, that was adorable. But, the, you know, I, I thought Phil did a really good job of explaining <laughs> to uh, uh you know uh, the limited intellectual ability and the life and the attention span of of an eleven year old I thought the answer was pretty good yes indeed I mean these I will agree with you with you all I mean these two characters are fantastic in their own ways I mean first off mrs. green she's the best mom you could ask for I mean she's feisty she's fiery yet with that huge heart and I love how supportive she is of of Phil and being of an older generation you know is right there you know with Anne when it comes to how open and progressive she is so kudos to her and and you know as both you were pointing out uh, David and uh, and well, all of you I suppose the final speech she has with Phil shortly before before the movie ends is so strong and you can very much see the message of hope I'm thinking the writers wanted to give through her 
when it comes to Tommy, I mean, he's right up there with Hugh Morgan, at least when it comes to me from How Green Was My Valley, but in a different way. As Tommy is much more starry-eyed and naive, though he very much, I think, gets Phil thinking on how to approach the story he wants to tell when they have that talk on anti-Semitism, what Jews are and what have you. And when he's looking at his dad and crying, why my heart was genuinely breaking, as that is very much the central question any oppressed person asks. And coming even more so from a child, it was just it just broke my heart. And young Dean just played it so well, because just to encapsulate that one moment of, you know, you're being hated for being different. And that's the, re the, the main question everybody asks is just why it was just. It brought everything full circle for me, definitely. So love these two characters to death. So let's look at how this then this film ended, where ostensibly uh, Phil goes back to Kathy and we go to Black. And after having pretty much told um, Anne that, you know, it's not going to happen between the two of them, he goes out and he's back with, uh, with Kathy. So, Rachel, starting with you, were you happy with how Gentleman's Agreement ended? <laughs> no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, I it's think a rhetorical I, I, question. I, I, think, I think Mrs. Green should have had her speech, and I think it should have just faded to black right there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just be like, they're going to live happily ever after. He and Kathy broke up, and, you know, but, you know, he's got his little family. He's got his son. He's got his mom. He's still got his friends. Dave is sticking around. You know, it, when he goes to visit Dave at the house, he may see Kathy in passing because she's going to be right next door at her sister's. Um, and the end <laughs> but uh yeah no he sh other than to just go and maybe clear the air and you know make sure that they're in agreement that yes we are broken up we are not going to be getting married and uh but i want you to know that you know we are likely to see each other in passing that we can be civil to each other that would be great <laughs> call it the end uh but this being uh you know the, the still the the romance i guess um of of everything that they they probably want to leave this on a, a more hopeful um note and uh, give you more the impression that no, they're 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 gonna talk and they'll probably smooch and they're probably still gonna get married and in theory they'll live happily ever after because that's what the Hayes Code asked for is if you're a bad person you get what's coming to you and if you're a good person you get to ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after and uh, honestly I think a lot uh, at least a good I don't want to know a lot, but a good handful of this movie, I think, suffers because of the Hays Code and the constraints that, that Hollywood was forced to conform to. Um, and I think that's partially why we got the ending that we got. And I hate it. <laughs> no. I, you know what I, I i'm kind of showing my hand but i'm kind of right there with you and i'm i and i, I have a feeling that our next speaker is probably right there with you david were you happy with how this film ended <laughs> hated it <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it, it, if he'd never gone back to her and we had ended as as uh, i think zane just said um rachel yeah oh rachel sorry um 
with with Ma and and let's hope for the future. You've gotten your hopeful ending, and um, and we could have avoided the kind of saccharine nausea um, uh, of that go to black when they're in the doorway. Very much so. And and Zan, were you happy with the ending of this? Well, here's a third echo for you, Nick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, like Rachel said, the Hayes Code called for the bad people to get what's coming to them and the good people to ride off in the sunset with a hopeful ending. And in my opinion, Kathy's the bad people. She should not be rewarded <laughs> at the end mm-hmm. of this movie. So this this movie ends. It, it's this is another one of those movies that is just has kind of a heartbreaking ending, partially because they did it wrong and they brought the two characters back together and they shouldn't be. Um, you know, uh, Anne's too good for Philip, but Philip's way too good for for Kathy. So you're not you're you know I'm not happy with the two of them getting back together. And then of course there is the concept of we're we are watching this movie in the future. And hindsight being twenty twenty, the hopefulness is is cynicism, and not just because you know. Yes, it's illegal to to have a hotel that says you know you you know can't stay here if you're Jewish. Um, people still find ways around that by having you know. There's still the Masons are still a thing. You know, we still have stuff like that. So we still have anti-Semitism. We still have you know, all the bigotry they talked about, and we're still saying the same stuff. We just keep saying it, and it keeps falling on the same deaf ears because people still keep raising their kids to be like these kids that beat up Tommy in the, in the schoolyard. And knowing that this movie, bad love story ending aside, has such a wonderful message about exclusion and bigotry and persecution being bad... Yet we know that Sam Jaffe and John Garfield got blacklisted. We know that Gregory Peck, June Havoc, and Albert Decker all were very vocal anti-QAC people. And we have the heartbreak of the, the, you know, the, the betrayal. I think of it now as a betrayal of Ilya Kazan. So um, the movie is, it, it, it wishes it ends well, but it just made me sad. <laughs> well, that's very well put, and I'm right there with all three of you because I I would have kind of been on the Elia Kazan's shoulder, kind of poking him, going, making the scissors gesture when when uh, when uh, Anne Revere does her speech, like, yeah, cut it now, that's it, you don't need anything else, that like, we're good. But no, we had to, of course, have uh, Kathy and and Phil reunite, and I was like, ugh, really, we're really doing this. So I was I was not particularly happy with the ending either. I thought we could have got, we could have cut it way before that, but that's just me. So let's get to our we were the Academy segment. This film won Best Picture during the 20th Academy Awards, held at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles on March the 20th of 1948. Your hosts for the night were Agnes Moorhead and Dick Powell, and presenting the award for Best Picture was Frederick March, who we'd actually seen in the Best Years of Our Lives. This film was running up against four other movies. We had The Bishop's Wife. Crossfire, Great Expectations, and the OG Miracle on 34th Street. So, starting here with you, David, does Gentleman's Agreement deserve the Oscar for Best Picture, or would you say it's at least Oscar-worthy compared to its fellow nominees? Well, thankfully, I didn't. I haven't seen the other ones, mm. um, so I I can just say uh, what I've been saying all night. Hated it, <laughs> <laughs> and I would never have given this. Uh, 
I did see Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, you know, they show it every year at Christmas time. Um, but uh, I think I would that I I found that even a, a much better movie than than this one. Oh, I found though I must say the um, the real pioneering attempt to, to deal with the subject, as flawed as it was, deserves a lot of credit. So again, I I say it's a it's an important movie because of when it appeared and how its subject matter, but um, low lowest marks um, for artistic or enduring importance. Okay, well, well, then we'll definitely see how that reflects in your ratings for sure. And Zan, when it comes to you, uh, do you think Gentleman's Agreement deserved to, to win the, the gold standard amongst our nominees of this year? Um, did it deserve to win? I mm. don't hang on sorry technical difficulties um the the thing is i don't know if it deserved to win from a filmmaking standpoint just just like david said it's not the greatest movie in the world it doesn't have the greatest um performances in it but the fact that it does what it does and talks about what it talks about and makes the points that it makes goes a long way with me you know there's there's a lot of movies there's not a ton of like really super memorable movies from this year probably miracle on 34th street is the most memorable one from this year one of my favorite humphrey bogart movies dark passage was out this year but is it oscar worthy eh, not really um looking at everything else that that was listed um, Miracle on 34th Street, you know, a little bit better performances, you know, kind of a trickly story. It's a, it is a Christmas story, and it does end on a hopeful note that you are happy about <laughs> a little bit more. But um, there's, uh, is this the best movie that was made? Probably not. But do I like the fact that it gets an Oscar because of what it talked about, the points it made so close to the war. Absolutely. Do, am I happy that Celeste Holm won Best Supporting Actress? Absolutely. <laughs> do I, do I, do I feel sad that Anne Revere and Celeste Holm were in the same category and they both couldn't win? Yeah, I am sad about that. <laughs> um, am I sad that Ilya Kazan won Best Director? Yes, I am. Cause I hate him, but I'm glad he was given some recognition for directing this movie, I would have liked to have seen this win best screenplay also for Moss Hart. Right. Yeah, because I know you're you're quite the, the Moss Hart fan yourself, uh, Zan. So yeah, yeah. So so yeah, so but definitely. And and Rachel, um, do you, would you give the, the best picture award to this to this picture? This one's hard because kind of like Zan is like the, the the moral that it's trying to tell and the story that it's and the things that it's trying to show are great, uh, especially uh, so close at, to after World War Two, and we now know you know, about the, the concentration camps and, and everything. So we know what happened to 
the Jewish people along with some other groups too. Um, and uh, so I, that's important, but as a movie, it's just not a good movie. It, the the acting is other than a, a few people the acting is not that good um the pacing is pretty bad you know like i think dave said it takes like 30 minutes into the movie before phil gets his idea of i'll pose as a jew um by then you know <laughs> we're a good chunk into the movie uh so um yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's not a good movie, um, you know, and we're talking about best motion picture, um, yes. so I, you know, best adapted, best screenplay, I guess, because uh, that's what the category would be, uh, not adapted, they didn't, weren't calling it yet, that, um, yeah, it probably deserved at least a nomination for that, Um but uh, I, I don't think this is the best movie. I think this is the best like piece of propaganda post-World War II, <laughs> maybe, for this year. But I don't think it's the best. I saw in a, in a, in a YouTube comment uh, a, couple, a couple of comments that people equated this to kind of like a... Uh, like the type of video that you're like, you would have to watch in a job to teach you about like bias and harassment in the workplace of <laughs> 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 the just how stiff some of the acting is take out the romance and that's what you've got um as far as what could have won or should have won honestly i don't know uh, you know miracle on 34th street yes it's a good movie um i don't know if necessarily holiday movies no matter how good they may be, um, are necessarily the, the because they're so shoehorned into the time of year that they are normally watched and enjoyed. I think something that should be best picture is something that you can watch anytime mm-hmm. and enjoy it. If I watch a Christmas movie right now when it's 40-something degrees outside and gloomy and rainy, I don't think it'll necessarily be in the same spirit as if it was December and there's snow outside. Um, that being said, The Bishop's Wife, it's a Christmas movie, too. It takes yeah. place at Christmas, so um, it's a fun story. Uh, it's got, you know, it's a good performance by Cary Grant, who actually was the first pick to play the role of Phil and he turned it down because he himself was, he considered himself at least partially Jewish and didn't think that he could pull off playing a Gentile pretending to be Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, I don't know anything else about the other movies that were nominated for that time period and the only other movie from that year from 1947 that I've seen is A Double Life Mm. um, which is actually a really good kind of psychological dark uh, movies with Ronald Ronald Coleman in it um, which I think of the the 
the three movies that I watched, I liked that of the three. So between that, A Gentleman's Agreement, and The Bishop's Wife, I probably like A Double Life the best, even though it has issues too. So, eh, I guess, <laughs> you know, considering I can't come up with a good answer for what should have won instead, yeah, sure, why not? Just for the propaganda of it all, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, 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 I'm, I agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, I see why they gave it to Gentlemen's Agreement. And I was, you know, it's uh, it's it's great that we see kind of Hollywood tackle this kind of subject matter. I did enjoy this film, but you know what? I am a major Dickens fan at heart and Great Expectations. This version of Great Expectations is fantastic. And it blows my mind. That it would take a musical of Dickens to win the best picture with Oliver, which Showing my hand a little bit, I absolutely love. But um, I would have actually given it to Great Expectations because it is so well done. Folks, definitely check out that version of Great Expectations because it's just so well played, masterfully done. The story is great. And I would have actually given it to Great Expectations as much as I think Gentleman's Agreement had an important message, which you had to be, there were things that had to be said. Maybe they weren't said the best way, but. I can see why, you know, coming from our recent two movies where we tackled alcoholism with The Lost Weekend and, of course, uh, PTSD, if you will, with uh, The Best Days of Our Lives, it kind of almost completes the trifecta, if you will, when it comes to discussing big topics. But, yeah, I would have actually given it to Great Expectations. So let's get to ratings then. Zan, what do you give this film out of 10? I'm going to give this one a 7 because, again, it has problems. Some of the acting is wooden. The love story is stupid. <laughs> but I think I think people need to see this one. This is this is one of those like all quiet on the Western Front for me, where I'm like, this movie needs to be shown to everyone in the eighth grade in school all the time, everywhere. I I think it's it it makes interesting points, and I think it's a good thing for us to see this because this is really the first time Hollywood ever tackled something like this mm. and it shows us how this has been a problem forever it's still a problem we need to figure this crap out and knock it the hell off um, and I, you know, and for any you know any film buff anybody who wants to be an anti-bigoted person these are the types of movies they should watch. Whether you know whether they're perfect or not, this is something you should watch. So I'm giving this one a seven. Sounds good. And Rachel, what do you give this film? Um, I'm not that actually far off from Zana. I'm giving it a six and a half. Okay. Um, just because, yeah, the story is important. I kind of liken it to, um, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front, and you can't take it with you. Um, where I was like, there's people that need to be like strapped to a chair, all a <laughs> clockwork orange, and be force fed these movies until they get the point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, unfortunately, that's not possible, but it should be done. Um, so, but yeah, the, the because the the acting is is pretty bad from from some of the cast uh pretty stiff and the the pacing issues um that does that does dock it a a little so well i mean that's fair and david you know you showed your hand quite a bit throughout <laughs> our review 
Does this film at least get a passing grade from you? Uh, no, it does not. This is a, <laughs> this is a film that should be shown uh, or in, and viewed in a course, a college course, a university course on the history of American filmmaking or a sociology class on prejudice and how it was dealt with. Um, and there are a whole hell of a lot better movies um, that tackle the subject. I mean, if, if, you're, if you've only got two hours of your life to spend on this, um, two and a half hours, watch Schindler's List. Um, so I'd give it a three. That's it. Wow. Yeah, or, or go more modern and pop in like Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing or yeah, something. It, yes, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's actually the lowest score we've had so far. So, okay. I'm no, actually... I, gave, I gave out Green Was My Valley a two, I think. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, Rachel gave a two in there somewhere. I don't. Yeah. I think it was how Green Was My Valley. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, <laughs> Rachel is, still, is still our... Uh, a Sokovian judge. <laughs> yeah, she's, st- she's still the uh, the harsh judge that you can't land a move. <laughs> and, and you, Nick? I'm going to actually give this a 7 out of 10, as I'm with Zan on this, because I think the message is important. I did enjoy some of the characters. I mean, I was right there with with uh, with Mr. Garfield, for sure. And um, look, e- Elia Kazan... Ha is not the nicest was not the nicest to people, but he tried to bring, I think, something important to the screen. I actually went and bought myself a copy of Laura Z. Hobson's novel, which I'm actually in the process of reading. And that woman really knows how to write. It's definitely a page turner. Absolutely love it. So yeah, it's a seven out of ten for me. So we talked about this film and dissected it. And should you folks wish to join us on one of our discussions or simply share your feedback about the podcast or certain films in writing, you can do so by shooting us an email at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter, where you can find it at as Oscars Gold, or on Facebook, where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. We love hearing from you guys, and we also appreciate the following support. Also, if you'd like to show your support for the podcast and have us review your favorite film nominee or your favorite film, which you feel deserve to be part of the golden conversation you can do so by joining our wonderful patrons on patreon that's patreon.com slash goldstandoscars other than picking your favorite outsider or nominee you'll also be able to unlock and enjoy previous reviews we've done such as notorious star wars singing in the rain and of course recently hollywoodland and many more so let's get to shameless self-promotion then rachel where can folks find you when you're not here at the gold standard theater um, you can find me with the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. We are a usually weekly, unless life gets in the way, uh, <laughs> pop culture and entertainment podcast where we talk about books, movies, video games, all things geeky and nerdy from the female perspective. Uh, we can be found pretty much wherever you can find podcasts. In fact, I just updated our uh, feed earlier today, so we should be appearing on uh uh, Amazon. <laughs> awesome. Hopefully, whenever that you know gets does whatever it does on the back end. Um, <laughs> so, and then uh, everything else can be found at the fiveishfangirls.com, including all our social media contacts and everything. Fantastic. And David, did you have anything you wanted to plug? Well, uh, I have to tell people that for uh, on and off for four years, Nick was the one who had to uh, translate all of my sermons and my weekly column from uh, English into Italian. Uh, and since I'm no longer um, associated with that congregation, serving that wonderful congregation, um, I don't uh, write 
and uh, I'm not to be found anywhere. And I'm sure Nick is very grateful for that. <laughs> so, Nick, thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you uh, again, uh, to hear your, your fabulous voice. Um, I wish I could see your face at the moment. Um, but big hugs uh, from me. And uh, thanks again. It was a, a, a true privilege. Well, thank you so much. And Zan, what about you? Where can folks find you? Well, folks can listen to me talk about movies while I indulge in my favorite adult beverages, uh, along with <laughs> Charles Skaggs on Drunk Cinema. And they can also hear me and Charles discuss all things David Lynch, all things tangentially related to David Lynch and Twin Peaks on Ghost with the Twin Peaks podcast. And I am Udinax19 on Instagram and Twitter. Fantastic. And when it comes to me, I do host a whiskey and cigarettes show where we play today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. For more info about that and where to tune in, you can visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, if superhero movies are your speed, I also host the Happiness and Darkness podcast where we discuss all the superhero movies from all the publishing houses, be it Marvel, DC, Dark Horse Image, or more. If you'd like to join me on there and discuss a superhero movie of your choice, you can send me an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We're also on social media facebook twitter and the instagram also speaking of uh, mr charles skaggs him of course jesse jackson and myself uh, are can be found on the fandom zone where we finished of course discussing one division the first three episodes of superman and lois and as of next week we're going to be diving into the falcon and winter soldier so definitely be, be sure to check that out and i can hear rachel clapping and i'm sure she's looking forward I'm to right that. Sure tomorrow. <laughs> you and me both <laughs> so that's where i can be found and speaking of things to come on this show next time we will be discussing the 1948 sir Lawrence Olivier film Hamlet. So I know that uh, that uh, David has left the, the the gold standard theater. So of course, we definitely want to thank him very very much for joining us today. Rachel and Zan, as always, a joy. You know, talking movies with you. And when it comes to this version of Hamlet, have either of you seen it before? It's thousand years ago, like like high school Shakespeare, <laughs> like long time ago. So essentially, no. Frankly, um, we'll we'll, we'll yeah. see how it does because I I am I'm unashamedly um, not anti but not a big fan of Shakespeare in general. So if Olivier can't do it for me, then there's probably no hope. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not yeah, I'm not like the biggest fan of Hamlet because just. You know, spoiler alert, nothing goes right in this. So you just basically watch people do the wrong thing and get murdered for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a downer. I mean, it's a real downer, but um, Olivia is amazing. So, you know, I, I do want to watch this again, but it's. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't particularly I don't even particularly like Hamlet himself, his whole get thee to a nunnery crap. I could do without. So. Yes, and of course, calling out his mother and all that kind of stuff. But we will definitely have a lot to talk about when it comes to that movie. And there are also some interesting appearances from some unlikely actors as well. That said, folks, we will see you next time with Hamlet. Of course, we want to thank you all so much for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you then. Until then, enjoy those movies and keep that popcorn hot. Ciao, my people. <laughs> Ich mach der Weile, was ich mach. Ich komm do wie ein Mensch, nicht kein Schelluje. 
Gut schalt's verloren, sei wie sei, will ich verloren, Adonai, und schreien will ich heim, Halleluja, 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 Halleluja.